to you from Podcast Detroit. It's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Please take a second to subscribe on iTunes. And for future episode information and additional content, head over to HerdPodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at HerdPodcast. Welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight we have the crew with me is yeah, that was really awkward. Vato, Dave, Jason, Nick, and we have a very special guest with us, Ashley Routson. 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 Known as Routson, known as the Beer Wench. Uh, she is with us. Uh, we're going to talk to her. Uh, Throughout the show, uh, we're going to start today with the uh, Metro Times article uh, about service written by Alyssa Offman. Um, I want to get your op- guys' opinions on everything, on the article itself and about uh, service in the uh, Metro Detroit area. Um, Dave, as a business owner. What had happened was, I love that you call on me first. <laughs> As I'm just were, shaking my head. Were you referenced in here? Unfortunately, <clears throat> no. Okay, this not is, this I time. Think, not this the, time. The first time I've not been referenced in one of her fantastically researched and insightful <laughs> motherfucking pieces <laughs> of shithole journalism. Yeah, thank you. We may want to edit that out. I'm not sure though. I'm just expressing how I feel. It's live. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. That's fine. Just kidding. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. Seriously, it says like. What what does the cover say? Like service, it's fucked. A peek inside Detroit's service industry and why, inevitably, it leaves much to be desired. But then the whole thing is a puff piece about select restaurants. And then it shows like like, you know, faces people at Selden Standard with their faces blurred out, which like if you're gonna go to a place in Detroit, like Selden Standard has pretty good hospitality, right? Like generally speaking. Because Evan's in here. I'm trying to see what it says about Evan. Yeah, so she talks to Evan. She talks to uh, Evan Hansen, uh, yeah. one of the owners of Selden Standard. Uh, Greg Mudge, the owner of Mudgies. Um, I mean, but that's the whole thing. The, the piece starts out like lambasting Mudgies. Mm-hmm. And then after the first paragraph basically goes on to be like, oh, there are a bunch of challenges in the service industry. No fucking shit there are. <laughs> like, yeah, that's our fucking job. It's really difficult in a changing market like this is. Yet – you put on the cover like service in Detroit sucks. Well, I mean the cover of fucking that. Yeah, and so that's some else publication was yeah. just ridiculous. Right, right. I, so I think the thing to keep in mind, and and, and that's really important to, important to point out, is that service everywhere isn't great. Like, I'm not talking about just Detroit. I'm talking about the United States. I'm talking about Europe. I'm talking about places I've gone and experienced 
lackluster service. Like New York last summer, for example, I think I maybe ate out at you know twenty, you know eight, ten, twenty different restaurants, and one or two had great service. All right. So, what are you comparing it to, though? Have you had good service somewhere? Like, is this just your vision of what service should be? Well, so I think they're working in the industry. There's certain books or people to follow, right? So. We're told to read Danny Meyer. So you read Danny Meyer, and Danny Meyer has a very specific way of talking about the hospitality industry. And to be perfectly honest, like a lot of us, I think, in this area might strive to be like Danny Meyer, but we don't have we're – not, we're not there yet. We're not to the level of New York yet, right? And that's not to say we should compare ourselves to New York, but um, New York's a much bigger market than ours, right? And so with that – you have more opportunities to do things like fine dining where people get this the, the skill set that I think Alyssa is trying to go after. Um, and Evan even mentions it in one of the quotes is that, you know, not many of us around here have worked in fine dining. Um, I mean, we don't have that many fine dining restaurants around no, here. No, I think the ones that we do have are closing. Right. I mean, we just went to Lark last year. That closed down, and that had been open, what, 15-plus years? Which means there's, like, a huge gap between people who have come from the fine dining world and people who are getting jobs to work themselves through college, you know, at some places. So it's like, what are you used to? You go to places and, like, you know, the the labor pool that they draw from, like, what what does it mean to be a professional server or mm-hmm. a professional in the service industry? I mean, we talk about this a lot because – um, even some of the past episodes, one of the things that attracted me to working with Dave is the opportunity to really reimagine like what it means to be sort of professional in the service industry instead of the service industry as this like catch all for you know. Well, and can you do that? So in Detroit, well, it's a challenge. Can you be a professional server? I mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Like at, at this point, I mean, I have one guy. I'm not going to mention him, but he makes you know probably a hundred thousand dollars a year in cash. Damn. Generally speaking, in tips, working at one of my places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, I mean. It's great. Yeah. yeah. I have no idea what his background is. He may have, uh, you know, a degree in architect- architecture. I have no idea. But, I mean, he makes more money now than he could doing pretty much any other job. Okay. So there is a, you know, a viable career there. And it, that's that's mostly tips. That's not wages or anything no, like he, that. No, yeah. he gets a wage as well. Okay. I'm just looking at, like, what he makes you know, I see his paycheck and what he declares, and he does very, very well. Right? So I, I bartended very, very briefly. And when I did, you know, the pay was like 2.11 or whatever it was then. And there were checks that I would work one week that I still haven't cashed from like four years ago because they right. were like $10.22. So if you don't have those tips or if you have people that are bad tippers or whatever, that really hurts you. And yes, I know supposedly the manager is supposed to cover that difference. But is that happening too? Maybe that's what do you another mean the thing. manager's supposed to get because I worked at Chili's and no, no, as a server. And but I that's got the law. Tips. You're supposed no, to you, get up you, to minimum wage, right? Yeah, you legally need to make at least minimum wage. So the whole thing about us, you know, uh, restaurateurs being able to pay uh, hospitality, like front of the house, less than minimum wage or server mm-hmm. minimum wage is uh, that you'll, in theory, recoup it right. on your tips. And I'm not saying that everyone does that, but it does feel that you know. There's that, you know, that difference between the two. Yeah. Like if you're if you are in a place that does notoriously have bad tips, you're not getting that full pay. Yes. Yeah. And then even what's more to be compliant, they have to report to payroll that you at least made 
minimum wage. So, so they're taxed on potentially that. you could have like negative paychecks. But again, yeah. I mean, just quit that. Place. I've been there. Yeah, just just quit. If if that's your situation yeah. where you're getting negative paychecks. Oh no, it's good to have negative paychecks because it means you're not reporting at all. Yeah, <laughs> until you need to buy a car. Right. But the, to those places, though, those aren't career service places. Right. No. Okay. That's a, that's, Absolutely. Yeah. That's what their difference is. We're not those those people are in transition from one job to the next or a stepping stone. To the next thing. I mean, when I was working at Chili's, I was like, this is not going to be my last job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, you know? but are, is that the exception to the rule? Are there enough jobs out there that you could live on? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is. There okay. Is. There's a shortage of, of, of everything in the service industry from what I can see. Shortage of cooks, shortage of servers. Mm-hmm. I mean, bartenders, maybe, maybe not. No, yeah. On, no, without question. Bartenders. Depending, on, depending on the type of level of bartending, if you're, you know, I mean, that's just, uh, that's just simple supply and demand economics, right? I mean, the market is growing. There's a demand for skilled labor, and there's not the supply hasn't really matched the demand. So, is it going to be from people coming in from outside of the city? Is it going to be training programs? I mean, everybody is uh, having the same challenge, right? As 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 we are. So that was when I read the article. That was my first thought: is that if you thought about it for a minute, it makes perfect sense. Industry is growing. You know, it's like we've talked about bourbon many times. Can't make bourbon and take you know four years. Right. You can't just make more. Can't just make more, you know, overnight. Talented, hospitality driven. You know, people you got to train them, you know, or find them, or bring them in, or the training is a huge part, and yeah. that's what a lot of people I think don't necessarily understand. I think Greg actually talked about it. It was either Greg or Evan in the article talked about the fact that we don't always train our servers or our service staff the way that we should. I do. Know. They just steal mine. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, and, the th- and further, also, you laugh like I'm fucking kidding. <laughs> the, the th- also, also, the thing is to, to to remember is when you're training and, and the kind of uh, follow up that's involved in training, and also like the passion that can't be taught, right? So, well, yeah, and, and so the passionate people that are either working for you or stolen from you or are, are noticeable in this industry, because there's also this uh, something I've noticed is that there's certain people groups of people that jump from opening to opening so if a restaurant's open mm-hmm. for say 3 months or 6 months there there's and I'm not saying they jump together but but they no, but there yeah. there are I servers get, that yeah. yeah that like migrate yeah yeah and and um it, I've always found it strange I understand why it's happening cuz the rest restaurants have honeymoon periods right so they're going to be really busy that first 6 months yeah um and I don't know uh I don't know enough about the the like overall books of Detroit businesses, but I can imagine that we're not at the same level as say like a publican in Chicago where they're doing mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of covers a night where tips stay pretty consistent past six months or past a year of places open, right? Um I'm sure it's Selden Standard, it's fine. Mabel Gray. Know, yeah. Mabel Gray, Grey Ghost, like places like that. But there's gonna be places that open and then all of a sudden business is gonna trickle, right? And, and uh, I, I mean, think it's up to the business, though, to keep that reputation going. I mean, it depends. It's not a trend that happens with all restaurants, especially if it's got a name behind it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I agree with that. And I but and this leads into another point about people living in the city and people frequenting places consistently, because I don't think the population is. I think you, you were getting at that point, Jason. Well, little population. Bit. Well, also, because well, what she said, I mean, part of it is reputation, keeping it going, but. Also, like, let's say point A is, you know, opening day, point B is a year from now. Like, is there going to be 20 more places open a year from now than there is today? That means there's how many more 
you know, 30, 60, you know, how many more extra people do you need? So yeah, they might see that other opportunity and I don't know. It's a, it's a challenge. I lost my train of thought. So where I'm, I come from, I'm from the Bay area for everyone. Um, I watched, I lived in the East Bay. I watched East Bay grow, um, Oakland and Berkeley. Well, Berkeley always kind of had something going on with the Alice Waters um, and the whole sustainability. And that's where slow food started. Mm. But, um, you know, a lot of restaurants moved from San Francisco because the rent was so high when the dot comers all started moving in like Twitter and stuff. They started kicking out a lot of the other businesses. Well, the rent kicked it out. But uh, so we saw Oakland grow kind of like what Detroit's going through. And a lot of restaurateurs moved from San Francisco and opened up a second or third or fourth location in Oakland. And it's done really, really well over there. But a lot of it has to do with the migration of the um, people as well um, to create a new downtown. It was like totally run down. We're talking really scary Oakland. And now it's built up. There's high rises. There's all sorts of restaurants now in Oakland. And, you know, one reputation and for me because i i sold to all those restaurants so i i watched that honeymoon period too and a lot of it too like you said foot traffic where people are living and um just whatever the new concept is as well there's got to be more diversity i think in detroit i haven't seen as much diversity as i've ever seen in chicago or san francisco or new york so i think that would help and how is the service out there, like out in the Bay Area, is the comparative, like for, from? Yeah, we see a lot of grow, career right? people out there just because um, we are one of those cities. Well, that's not my city. This is my city now where the minimum wage is $15. It mm-hmm. is a livable, hypothetically livable wage um, once you add the tips and everything like that. And because it is a, a city where there are so much money, so much disposable income with all of the um, dot-com businesses. I don't know why I call them dot-comers, but I do. <laughs> so, you know, you have everybody, even though they're working in Silicon Valley, everybody from Apple, Google, um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they all live in San Francisco and they're young and they've got disposable income and they're out. So mm-hmm. that's why the industry out there is thriving. And that's why you can be a career bartender and like you can make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Easy. Like I know I tons of people I was so jealous of because I was like, wait, <laughs> your job is better than mine. <laughs> so, all right. When you said the minimum wage is $15, mm-hmm. is that $15 plus tips? So that, yeah, yeah. I just spent um, a couple of days in San Francisco, and in four days I went to thirty-two places, wow. bars and restaurants. And what did you, you know, experience service-wise? Phenomenal. Okay, the hospitality so was so competitive, though. Yeah, well, I, I don't disagree. I have no idea what the back job. end looks like. Mm. I'm sure, I'm sure, because I think that these people are really well paid, and w- I, every single place that I went to. Maybe one or two, the hospitality wasn't on point, but the hospitality in, in general was, I mean, you know, light years ahead of what we're offering. So segueing to something I want to talk about is, did you drop like where you were from when you go to these places or you kind of... Did Always. The first thing I do is I walk in and I'm like, hey, <laughs> so you know. Uh, no, no, really. No, not at all. Fernet coin down? Yeah. Like- I put my business card down on my Fernet coin. Okay. <laughs> and then my balls. That, well, that <laughs> coin has got me into a bar this is in, where we're in at. San Francisco. I was, Same. I just, it's I was, got me in. Yeah. I was in shorts or my buddy and I were there in shorts like, oh, we can't let you in because you're the dress code. I'm like, oh, come on. I'm in the guild. Showed my coin. Like, can you show this to the bartender? I'm sure to make an exception. They're like, okay, you can come in, but stand over by the bar. And don't let anyone see you. You can have some drinks. Were you in a thong or were you in shorts? Just I shorts. Know. I've been walking around. It's pretty casual. I was casual walking around town. all day. I'll tell you, it was that uh, library pub. It was uh, the one they had to oh, have yeah. 
passwords and all that. Oh, yeah. That's fair. Well, and I bring up kind of name recognition because more for the three of us, Vato, Joe, and I, is people recognize us as kind of food blogger types. Um, So when I go in, I tend to get good service because they they know me. And even when I go to new places. So I'm wondering, am I seeing – because I haven't had bad service. I mean – uh, so for the most yeah, part, yeah. So there, there was another article that uh, was written earlier in the year that I glossed over. Uh, it was about VIPs, uh, Eater Road, mm-hmm. Eater. It was a um, in, uh, some someone in, in Eater National, and um, I, I don't know. Like, like I, I have this. Feel, like I don't want to be that person, but inevitably, when when I walk into a place and someone recognizes me. Um, there is some type of like hoopla involved, and I and it sounds really arrogant even to talk about it this way. But there was um, a lot of hoopla when you walked in this room, <laughs> right? I know, you know, those streamers on it, you know, all that stuff, um, theme music, um, and uh, there are balloons, there are balloons in here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, so service for me, service for you, for for you, Nick, and I mean, it's different. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, and and I'm one of the people talking about service, and I'm the one you know I'm the one at Ackroyd's training people on service. Um, but the service I experience and you experience is def. I think it's definitely different. And I mean, maybe you, Dave, as well. Like you go into a place like most people know you in Detroit. Like it's going to be local, locally. I mean, I, when I was in San Francisco, I, mean, I I absolutely did the opposite of just just trying to do sure. like the normal customer experience and. You know, if if you ask a guy about his barrel of Armagnac, they're going to be like, "Are you in the industry?" Yeah. And then you're like, "Well, yeah." You but, drop some you know, hints eventually. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got to drop a little bit of hints. <laughs> well, what you do know, you guys think like, about? So then, so in the article, it references Molly Abraham, mm-hmm. a well-known restaurant critic, and she took the view that she always gets great service, maybe because of this VIP thing. But she also introduces the idea that maybe uh, too much is being asked of servers. So. What even is the idea of hospitality? Where did it come from? How do we reach this point where you maybe referenced it earlier with people are reading books, but is the customer expecting too much? Is she expecting too much? I, I guess I don't know what um, – like my expectations like are – Like what do you expect? Yeah. Yeah. So if I go into a place where – there's different expectations of different restaurants, right? So um, – and like so for Coney Island, uh, you know, for Lafayette, for example, like it, my expectations would be to – be served quickly and uh, get hot food, right? Not have them shit right on your food, <laughs> right? Like, right. Not directly. Not like while you're. Not like while you can see it, because that would be for Lafayette is poor hospitality. Like at least take it in the downstairs. But, 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 but there's and then like, shit on it, then bring it back up. But there's like you know like that's like you're not expecting much there, right? Right. Like you're you're going. You're Absolutely. probably you're probably you know like yeah, and so. Which is funny. Can we talk about the Coney Island thing for a second? I'm from New York originally, and I had no idea what was going on when I first got out here. Have you ever been to Coney Island in New York? Yeah, yeah, totally different. (laughs) Not related. I was like, "What is Detroit's obsession with Coney Island?" Because that's where I used to go on rides when I was a kid. Don't mean the same things. (laughs) Yeah, that's like Boardwalk to me, and like cotton candy and rides. This is hot dogs, quarters, and machines. Chili, chili, onions. Why do you have to call it Coney Island though? I can't. We started it. Own it. <laughs> New York, a guy from New York had a Coney dog. This is true. A guy from New York came to Detroit, had a Coney dog that was so good, he was like, fuck this, I'm going to call it 
It was, but it wasn't called the Coney Dog at that point. No, well, it wasn't. It was okay. a chili dog. Because it's interesting. It's in Coney Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it yeah. doesn't. He Cincinnati took it back to New York. The history of the chili invented, dog. That's not true. I mean. There, there's oh. actually. <laughs> I don't know. I thought I was like waiting for the. It, no, you guys totally bought in. I was. It, I worked against. I did. <laughs> I mean, it's just a chili cheese dog. Never no, again. No, no cheese. I'll never no, be no cheese. Again. You can, just chili. You can add chili. You can add whatever you want. You can add cheese if you're a savage. What about Skyline though? Isn't that like the original like chili thing? That's more spaghetti though, isn't it? That's that's the five way, right? Dogs. I don't know. Well, there's three to five depending on yeah. yeah. But it's not. It's onions. I don't know. Onions, cheese. (laughs) I have no idea. Pasta. I've never had one by the way out here. I don't. I'm afraid of it. Now after your description, (laughs) I am not trying. It's hot dogs. No bean chili. Yeah. Onions, mustard. Well, at least it's no bean. Yeah. No bean. So you feel good in the morning. Meat on meat. <laughs> you don't really. feel good in the morning. Steamed bun. So Steamed. Okay. Sorry. We got <laughs> I'm going to bring this back. Yeah. Right. Back, do we, back really, to the do we really expect that? Um, do we expect so, so I have this. So I teach this uh, when I when people come to the bakery to work for us. I teach what's called ICE. It's informed, confident enthusiasm. Did you make up that acronym? I did. It's my own. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and so important to me is that. So this is across there's the whole service industry and to some extent even a Coney Island, but more so like a Mabel Gray or a Selden or, you know, someplace where you're spending, you know, 30, 40 bucks a person. You know, you're expecting to spend that much money. Um, so a server should be informed. So they should know uh, know a lot about what's happening around them, the menu, the, you know, and, and pairings even down to that. Should be confident, confident enough to sell what they're what they're uh, what they're informed about and then enthusiastic about it because you can have one of these things or none of them um, if you, you can be informed and not be confident or enthusiastic you can be confident and not know a thing and just confidently sell nonsense and you can be enthusiastic but you know uh, enthusiastically uninformed right um, I think a lot of it's just attentiveness like hey well, I see you we're busy I'll be there in a second well that's part of it I mean the article talks about oh I didn't even say anything and that's how it's start with the, the munchies yeah but to go back to the, I, I do, I expect a lot, but I don't think I expect too much. Uh, the worst thing that I think to, to me is that you get to somebody and it's like, okay, well, you know, what do you think about this dish? Oh, I haven't had it, but a lot of people order it. Or oh, sure, right. I mean, I th- I actually really like your, everything's I, good. I like what you were saying, Joe. Like, I think that that's actually a really nice model because you know, to be a qualified bartender server, you've got to know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You got to be able to sell it. And you got to believe in it. Which is basically the same thing that we talk about. It's a di- you know different words that you're saying, but that's the whole model that we say is like know what the fuck you're talking about, believe in what you're talking about, and be able to sell it. That right. goes back because to training, like though, because when you're talking about training, you got to know what you're talking about as an operator. Then they all got to come in, they all got to learn For about sure. stuff, they all got to taste through it. For sure, Trainings. every time, every time oh, something comes oh, yeah. out, whether it's food or drink, you know, staff training information, menu matrix, be prepared, taste through it. It's not just throwing people out there. Yeah. That's well, why I don't like that article. Yeah. Well, so I, I think Bad that the, article. these articles that, you know, and they can only go so far. Um, this is a, this is training based and a lot of it is ownership based. And I'm not trying to call out owners, but it's really difficult. Um, owners are stretched thin. Um, and if an owner isn't enthusiastic about the business, yeah. Um, how can they expect their employees to be enthusiastic? So I don't care who who it is, where you are, or what kind of business it is, whether it's a Coney Island or whether it's um, fine dining. 
if the owner isn't enthusiastic and isn't present, at least for part contagious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no sense that an employee, um, no matter what level they are, will get anything done. Do we know if Alyssa has been in the industry? She said she's served for 10 years in the article. Oh, jeez. So, hey, talk, Nick, check this out. Let's talk, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about something that Greg says in the article. He, he says that, you know, something like to the extent of a Yelp is uh, they go to Yelp instead of coming to the managers, right? Or asking for oh. the manager. So, and that's a problem with all industries because my wife runs it. It's a huge it too, thing. Yeah. There was a, I mean, there, there was one time when I saw on Facebook, it was a, an officer who said, Oh, I had terrible service and mudgies. I'll never go back. And this officer ended up, it was one person that worked for me. And so I went up to her and I was like, what is this all about? I love mudgies. What do you, what, why wouldn't you go back? So I called Greg and I'm like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. We ended up going over there. We took pictures in front of the scout car. He's, you know, he apologized, but he, it wasn't brought to his attention. She mm-hmm. put it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Right. And if somebody's going to have a problem, you you write an article and make a call afterwards and say, Oh, well, Hey, uh, you know, I didn't get I didn't get sat within the first fifteen minutes, or or maybe it's a big deal. Maybe the restaurant was empty. Maybe you didn't have anybody look at you. I, I've had places I walked out, and I chose not to tell the, the owner or manager, but I also didn't write about it. You know, yeah. I was like, some people have shitty days, and yeah, you know, that happens. And also, some people look at Yelp as like their their tool of empowerment, right? Like this is their 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 pedestal to stand on. And the internet gave me power. Totally. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. I, I I've never I didn't tell you this. I managed two restaurants in, in my past, um, and I was a server. And I am so all about local, small. I worked for an organic brewery for four years, so I'm a sustainability champion. But I will say, everybody should work in a corporate restaurant because I worked in the Darden Group. I worked at one of their higher end restaurants. And that's when I learned how to be a really fantastic server because you have a checklist of things just in case there's a secret shopper and you get punished. And then that's a kind of corporate structure where they reward you for your service by giving you the best sections in the restaurant. So, I mean, there and it's constantly competitive every day on that floor between you and the other servers and your performance because the managers are always watching and you know that's how you get the best sections and that's how you make the livable wage that you're looking for because in the same restaurant you could have servers making 30,000 a year and 100,000 a year. Wow. And I'll tell you for bad service just to comment on that cuz you got servers trying to get good sections, right? In in other places such as the the Chili's I worked on now granted it was what 20 some years ago, uh, people would pay the host to cut them early. So how about that? You're you're working there and you're paying the host to cut you early. And that's, I mean, those people don't want to be there. So you're balancing off that. If you're going to go to that place as a customer, you kind of get what you get. Right. You know, and I'm not saying that all the corporate places have bad service. I've been to corporate places that have great service and that you, you want to keep going and, and whatnot. But you know, it's it's kind of how it goes. That's, that's the number one reason I don't eat at Chili's. <laughs> that and the diarrhea. <laughs> Um, what are your thoughts on pooling versus not pooling tips? Because you talk about no oh, boo, no pooling. Well, yeah, because that that kind of brings up the well, difference. Well, I mean, exactly what she just exactly, said. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We we I want my my number one gals guys to shine mm-hmm. and really kick ass, and then put them on the floor at the right time. We're seeing this weird thing where the guys, the bartenders, are like I'm not making as much as the servers, so I want to be a server. And if the kitchen guys said that, then no one would be able to make any money because no, everybody would be serving nobody food. 
So we're we're experiencing this weird thing right now. I do think bartenders need to pool because there are so many different stations, especially what, what I've seen in the Bay Area where you have people who are just stuck on the well, right? And then they're the ones who are pounding out drinks for all the servers. And you have the people who are the greeters, you know, behind the bar and they take a little bit more time. And those are those are positions, too, that are orchestrated by the front of the house where they find the people who are more friendly with the guests and they put them in the, the spots at the bar where they're going to be interacting with the people sitting and dining at the bar and then you put the people who are really just good at functioning and you know shaking drinks as fast as possible put them in the well and you've got a really efficient bar but i mean you have to have somebody in the front of the house who can train the bartenders and manage that as well and, and know and we do that where. we do that at all of our places all the all the bartenders basically have one login and they all split tips based on the, the hours they worked okay because for that exact reason like some guys are better better at making drinks and some, some guys are better at romancing customers sure. right and we want to have a little of both mm-hmm. so you know some guys work in one station other guys work in another and you know it is what it is i think servers <clears throat> you have a much more intimate relationship with the guest and you know you're 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 touching on the table and and the servers have the ability to upsell not in a negative way but you know experience this you know try this try this one you know whatever and so they should be rewarded exclusively and independently for that skill set, mm-hmm. you know, I agree. And I think Nick's, Nick's just upset because he's got to tip out the house mom and the and the DJ before he leaves. So, so, yeah, <laughs> DJ and the door guy. Sorry. So, so it's like a stripper reference. <laughs> I don't. Uh, the you, house mom. Don't, was. don't you bartend at the? No. I, um. Oh. So that just came up. There, the the one of the strip clubs is like the the most profitable bar in all of Detroit. Uh, yes, all of the strip clubs are the most. Listen, I own a bunch of bars. All of the strip clubs are the most fucking profitable bars. You can. I don't own any strip clubs. I wish seven dollar. Damn you! Know you who owns strip clubs? Joey Redner's dad. Joey Redner owns Cigar City Brewing Company. His dad owns all the strip clubs in Tampa. That's where the money came for Cigar City, I believe. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Which we're getting soon, right? Are we getting Cigar City? Yeah. Random segue? We should be, yeah. I think so, yeah. Um, I heard. Also, the Pantheon has 60,000 Instagram followers. Just <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you and I were talking about it. That's what it was. Big surprise. And it's a private account, which makes sense. It's a strip club. I'm sure there's know, a lot going like, yeah. I was just thinking that years ago when I used to frequent that area, there that would never occur to me to... <laughs> It never have occurred to me to look Years on ago. my phone. Ah, God, was Instagram. that a year ago, Jason? Yeah, Jeez. Was... But think about that. Just this little reminder like, hey, there's some boobies. Yeah, all right. I'll go to the strip club. Um, <laughs> funny funny how that sells. It makes perfect <laughs> sense. It sells booze. I don't know why I caught me Instagram allows that? No. Yeah. Actually, yeah. If it's private, though, you really? might be able to get away with it. Privates, yeah. I have yeah, learned privates. a lot in the last few weeks about Instagram <laughs> oh, no. and Twitter and the not safe for work versions. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Ashley to talk about Actually, her she's life still here, though. <laughs> as the beer wench. Yes? Yes. Yes. Oh. All right. Celebration. <laughs> Woo. And welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. So Ashley's joined us. Uh, she's been with us the whole show so far, but now we're going to talk to her yeah. specifically And uh, let's start with the beer wench moniker. Yeah. Where did it come from? Uh, I was 23 years old and (laughs) it was your AOL instant messenger account. Uh, Yeah, actually it was. (laughs) Well, at one point it was, I was working for a marketing advertising firm at the time. Um, I 
I started in restaurants when I was about 18 or so. So I had already fallen in love with the craft beer fad, what everyone called it back then. And uh, I wanted to start a blog and I couldn't decide between wine or beer because I had started studying for my sommelier when I was 22. And I was really more knowledgeable about wine than I was about beer at that point. But I was so intimidated by people like Robert Parker and like he hated bloggers. We're talking. Oh, there was a well, whole. War I hate with, Robert Parker. So. <laughs> well, so do I. Um, and we're even. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of them. Steve Heimhoff and uh, a bunch of the wine writers who uh, initially in the early 2000s like came out and they had an online war with bloggers because they 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 challenged the credibility essentially mm-hmm. of these kids. Like who are just you know sharing their passion, and it's so like I decided. Hoffman. Yep. So I went with beer, and uh, you Too know, twenty three years old. What what else do you call yourself? I don't know. Like I didn't think about being thirty four and sitting around and calling myself a wench, but it stuck. <laughs> so this is ten plus years ago. Ten mm. ish, nine ish. Yeah, it's about ten. Ten. So I'm trying to think of the state of the craft beer industry in. Michigan, it's West Coast, and you were in you were in California. No, I was in Ohio. Uh, oh, uh-huh. okay. I went to school yeah. at a very small <clears throat> university in the Columbus area. Oh, <laughs> oh boy, it's tiny. That's, that's where the podcast. It's the one. It's the it's the Big Ten school that wins. I think <gasps> too soon. Come on. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so. Anyway, well, so so. Ten years ago, uh, yeah. and even now to some okay. extent, it's it's a male dominated field. Oh God, I was like the first female blogger uh, about beer, <laughs> not ever. <laughs> and and you literally wrote the book on beer from a female perspective. I mean, obviously you're yeah. You wrote I mean, it, wrote it, technically book, it's a non gender book. Well, right, <clears throat> but I mean, yeah, I have the female part. So how how has it been working in the working in the industry that is so male dominated? Well, it's been awesome, but you have to understand that I'm a an anomaly of a human being. I um, I played sports my whole life. I've always kind of been a tomboy, so I get along with men as like friends, and I've mostly had male friends. And so for me, it wasn't necessarily I was like this girly girl who was like, "Hey guys, let's all have some beer. It's so exciting!" I was like, "Hey, I want to put boots on and I want to wash kegs for eight hours a day and get caustic all over me." And you know, so I've done all the nitty gritty. When I first got into the industry, I wasn't working in the industry. I was just like this geek who volunteered to work at all the breweries that I could physically possibly get my hands on. And the very first brewery, I actually collaborated with with a recipe and brewed a beer like that i helped design was new holland oh that's yeah. great yeah mm-hmm. i flew out and love i those guys. Uh, yeah, yeah no they're one of my favorites forever ever ever i love you fred take their whiskey survey just came out yeah I, fred is great i just did fred's podcast oh it's called stop and heard heard no is it what no Stop and listen. H E R D. You know. mean like Fred Bultman? Yeah, Fred yeah. Bultman. Yeah, yeah. He just came over to Sugar House. You mean he the is. vice president of Brandon Lifestyle? I think Eddie he's the Howard? president of Brandon oh, Lifestyle now. Get out of here! <laughs> I think he is. He was. He's great. He's he's a f- super fucking smart guy. Yeah. Well, I got to stay on his farm. It was amazing because. What? 
Yeah, he has the I farm. I want to stay in his farm. And his wife, his wife does horse therapy, um, physical therapy on horses and stuff. And they have a whole garden that's huge. It's like this little mini farm. And then they have a barn with chickens. And in the morning, he went out to his garden and he picked all these herbs and like tomatoes and stuff. And then he went into the barn and he got some eggs and he made a frittata, like literally a farm frittata for me and my other friend that was brewing. And then um, he had uh, canned some tomatoes from like a a summer crop or something and they were in jars and he added some herbs and spices and then the hop kila at the time i don't know if they still make it and just blended it up and it was like fresh farm fresh bloody mary with local made spirit and a farm fresh frittata and i was like this is heaven so not all of us probably have access to the norman walkwell painting that you just made in our notes <laughs> but the tours that they do offer at their distillery mm. um is fantastic um, so they do have a great experience, both, you know, kind of private and public. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of throw that out there. Well, when I brewed there, we actually brewed at the the pub because that was where the, the distillery was at the time. So this was a long time ago. I'm, I'm aging myself. But yeah, it was really cool because we used the pub kitchen. We actually made a, a chai-inspired beer. Cool. There was multiple levels of uh, <laughs> involvement in that. But we toasted some fennel on the stove. And, uh, you know, we used pink peppercorn because back then pink peppercorn wasn't the thing. Now it's a super trend. But I thought I was being really cool by picking it. And it was a really fun experience. And I am stoked that I got to be New Holland was my very first real recipe that I that I got to brew. Those guys are some of my favorites. And Fred is like my BFF. I have hilarious stories of us, but I won't tell them. I look forward to hearing that. It's, it's like a what happens in Vegas. <laughs> Kind of what happened in Chicago 2010. To correct the record, it's called the Stop and Taste Conversations. Oh, cool. With Fred Beetleman from New Holland. He's and awesome. He's a, he's a lovely man. Oh, I love him. I mean, and he, a generous lover as well. <laughs> <laughs> so too far? Is that too far? No. God damn. I don't I, honesty is the way to go. It's, it's a safe fine. space. Safe space. Um, so you're at New Holland then. So as you're... you're life and craft beer progresses what happens next um so okay okay, so it started back when i was managing a restaurant in columbus uh that's the first time i ever experienced craft beer and i was living in new york because that's where i'm from and i actually went to the the cia to get interviewed for this restaurant job and they i knew so much about wine back then they were just like who what why (laughs) what 22 year old knows what a like a barbaresca barbaresco is and a barolo and the difference and i'm like i do but uh so so i ended up getting the job and no joke it was during labor day weekend they always shut down the restaurant it was a very organic friendly restaurant and they worked really closely with a local organic farm in columbus and so they put us all on a school bus I didn't even start my job yet, but we're taking this day off to go to this organic farm where the farmers are cooking and we're cooking with them. And like the, the back of the house is actually helping out with the farmers and they start unloading all these uh, cases of beer out of the bus and they're funky. They're weird. And I've never seen cases of beer like this and it's dogfish head, right? And it's bells. And that is the ugliest packaging ever. Sorry, Larry Bell um, for two hearted, but everybody like just flock to it and they started tearing open that one box and I was like I gotta get me some of whatever everybody else is drinking and it was my first IPA ever mm. was Bell's Too Hearted and because I was like, fish makes you want to drink beer <laughs> I'm like let me get a fish up in this motherfucking well, label it's just a, the colors mm. but you know what nostalgia I can pick that 
beer out of a a blind tasting with just my nose. Well, and nationally, that has fantastic distribution. Oh, I mean, God. I see two hearts. I was going to say, unfortunately, go. that label tanked their brand, but apparently that's not what happened. No, oh, no, it's, not, it's, it's an insanely <laughs> But it's like, why are there fish on the label of your beer? Like, that's not yeah. what I, I mean, I don't know. Oh, and the colors. Maybe it's just me. But. but I will tell you one thing. That is one of the original single hop IPAs. And so is Founders. Uh, this is back in the day when people didn't need, feel the need to draw out the hop names because hops weren't popular and sexy. I mean, there was pretty much a pool of maybe a dozen hops that everybody was brewing with. Um, so hop innovation has definitely been something I've been watching. And it's crazy. It's out of control right now with all the different hops that they're coming out with. But yeah, so I started with that first experience of the IPA, but that was back when Ohio had um, alcohol limits. And I believe it was something around eight, maybe, or maybe 10. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had to smuggle uh, higher alcohol beers, like the Dogfish Head ones, like the 120-minute, and uh, Founders, um, their Kentucky Breakfast Stout was my very first bourbon barrel-aged stout. And I remember it specifically because one of my friends had gone over the border to smuggle it and he had it in a brown paper bag. And we're literally drinking it in one of our favorite craft beer bars, passing it around. (laughs) It was like totally, yeah, it was totally prohibition style. And that's one of the greatest experiences or memories I have of uh, craft beer. You know, I remember every single time I had a first everything. There's an interesting I, – I'm sorry. I had to look this up. There's an interesting story about the two-hearted and why there's a trout on there. There's a, there's a couple different versions. Does that have of to them. do with In, Indulge us, please. All right, one of them says that uh, uh, it's, it's named after Hemingway's Big Two-Hearted River, which makes mention of trout fishing on the river in Michigan. That's another, random. Another story says that trout actually has two hearts. The first is a normal blood-pumping heart and uh, – yeah, it's just it's a weird, there's a whole little, little picture here of the trout with the circulation and everything. Hemingway I mean, should have stuck with the daiquiris. Did, did, Amen. Did well I agree. Daiquiris, right? yeah. I mean, I've been to Hemingway's house. Interesting. Mm-hmm. With his fucked up cats and their fucking feet. I don't think they're still <laughs> alive. No. Yeah, don't they have an extra toe? No, right? no yeah, yeah. There's a whole yeah, yeah. thing. They've there's got like, like a whole Instead genus. of one thumb, they've got like four more. It grosses me out. <laughs> I'm really not but good at that But cats are shit. so hot right now. Cats are pretty hot right now, but I mean, it just grosses me out. I got to wash my hands. Right, right now you have to wash your hands? Yeah, because I think about physical deformities and I have to wash my hands. Mm. It's hmm. a weird thing for me. Hmm. Anyway. We're, we're learning so much. Back to Yeah, I feel yeah. like we're really delving in deep here. Uh, back to what we were saying. So trout. Trout? No. Um, Hemingway? So beer? Columbus. Yeah, so and Columbus. Then, uh, I, I've been everywhere around the country. Um, I did move to Florida, and that's where I got to work for Darden, right by headquarters. I worked for Seasons 52. Hmm. I worked under George Miliotis, who's a, a sommelier, oh, sorry, a master sommelier. And so I was at the training location, and maybe this is why I have such like a skewed uh, vision of why corporate training is better than anything else. Uh, because I worked at the training location where we trained every single store that right. opened, and we ha- we were required to have some sort of level of sommelier um, from one of the two schools. Like intro or like – Yeah. I okay. mean just intro. Something. I mean there isn't like a – in the Cicerone program, you know, you have like the little online um, version Beer of the server. test yeah. and you can just get certified. The sommelier is actually hard. Okay. 
It is. It is. No, it is. No, you're right. I mean, yeah. it, you're right. Like, like that's, the that entry first, level is hard. The entry level is hard. I mean, I looked at the entry level and I was like, ah, I'm gonna. I'm it's gonna not a pass on this. You one. have to go somewhere. Yeah, you right? got to go yeah. and you yeah. got to have a test. And but even still, and and I think that even then, you're just qualified as like a wine server. Yeah. Right. I yeah. I don't know. Are you? It's a, been a while. I'm a CSW. Yeah. So it's certified wine server. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Right. So that initial test is like is pretty. It's, it's pretty robust, and I I called Allerton, and I was like, we know, I, you know, Joe Allerton from Rose, who's uh, studying for his MS, and I was like, you know me, like, do you think I can hack this? And he was like, probably not. <laughs> he was for like, if you do, you probably should put some time in. And so, so I struggled, wow. and you know, I yeah, studied it's, it's a lot. Legit. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's an the, intense the, test. The tough part that got me were varietals in South America. Oh. That was <laughs> typical, oh, hard every time. <laughs> No, all the God. native varietals down there, because at least yeah. over here in the United States, we brew with vinifers. Sorry, we brew, we brew with vinifers <laughs> grapes. Wow, no, but like when you start talking about South America, all the different countries, you have to learn Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and ugh, horrible. There's and and like for a native English speaker, these are really hard terms to even say, let alone mm-hmm. memorize to to write down on a test. So. Then <laughs> just stopped in the tracks. Um, trout, trout. Um, anyway, um, that's the title. Two, the, the title of this trout. podcast is trout. two trouts. I'm yes. going to Floridita. The, then you uh, you, you move out west. You're uh, yeah, California. For Green, Green Flash. Yeah, I work for. I'm still still gratefully employed by Green Flash Brewing oh. Company. I'm on a very extended federal medical leave for mental health. When you I say like federal, it. what is it? You said federal? Oh, yeah. There's the Federal Medical Leave Act, which says, Interesting. yeah. Oh, my I God. I want one of those. FMF? Uh, well, those? but it's uh, unpaid, and it just pretty much essentially says that they're holding my job while I get better. How does one – so that's an application process or – Yeah, and you, does, have to, you have to work for a company that's over, I think, 50 employees. Um, I don't know if it's just different. Well, it's a federal act, so hmm. it's all around the country. It's kind of like what disabilities is. You can either go the disabilities route and that you have to go through the state for an application because the state would then give you a portion of your wages. Whereas if you just do the federal medical leave act, it's up to 12 weeks a year and the employer doesn't pay you during that time, but they're required to hold a position for you so that you can be employed when you're finally able to come back. You have to work 1250 hours in the previous 12 months. Right. To be eligible for it. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you've been looking into this. I like it. Well, working for the government, you have to know a little bit about <laughs> federal laws. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Ashley, so yes. th- that's a good getting, segue. Getting, yeah. getting, getting better, right? Getting so, better. Um, what does that mean to you? And what? So you? Well, I, you wait. Turn, hold on. Let's let fill in the gaps. I mean, I don't think everyone knows exactly. Oh. Or do, or so what happens or what's going on? I don't know. Is there off limits? Life? I don't know. No, there, okay. there's absolutely okay. nothing off limits. That's you, kind so of, you bring up the medical yeah, leave. Yeah. Yes. So, right. Yeah. What so, prompted the medical leave? Yeah. What we prompted about. the medical leave? Um, let's see. <laughs> I have bipolar disorder. Um, it's a progressive disease. You know, I got diagnosed probably six years ago or so after a very significant incident of self-harm. Where I decided to take my $100 hankle and uh, sharpen it very nicely and then take it to my arm as if it was a piece of meat. And uh, 
ended up in the ER and then ended up getting a nice little stay overnight in the psychiatric uh, institute. And that's called a 5150 in California. That's the... I'm in the 5150 club. Uh, that just means I got um, put in the mental institution against my will. Mm. Um, but that was when I got diagnosed as bipolar because you have to have crazy, uh, crazy manic episode. You have to absolutely go out of control with mania to the point. And this is this is something that within the bipolar community we've been discussing. The fact that they need such a heavy um incident to happen before they'll give you the bipolar mm, diagnosis. It's a very high threshold. Mm-hmm. But because they just they don't want to misdiagnose people with bipolar disorder because those drugs are totally different than the drugs you would treat um, people with depression. So you're talking about effing with someone's um, brain. You're 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 putting um, pills in. right. And impact the neurotransmitters and the firing of your brain. And that's kind of like something you don't want to mess up. So I totally understand why you would require such a huge manic episode. But I also think that some of us could kill ourselves before we get that, before we get help. And do you think being in an industry that has access to substances, yes. did that hurt it, help it? Did that that's, no, no, that's, process, no that's, part of it? That's what put me down. Okay. The, the rabbit hole, as we'll call it, you know, I was uh, Alice in Wonderland and I was drinking me and eating me and snorting me and everything me. And uh, now I've been clean for 86 days. So I'm sober. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Thank you. I uh, I'm a alcoholic and cocaine addict. So and that's a very, very hard thing to come clean with in the industry because nobody knew. Um, but also it's so important because if it, if it happened to me and I'm hypothetically the, the darling of craft beer, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very much the darling in the industry, you know, the one that ever, all of the, the, what I would call the, the elders, right. They all protected me, you know, the, the Larry Bells of the world, you know, um, all like Sam Calagione from Dogfish Head is a good friend, you know, him and his wife, like all these people, you know, Julia hers, like from the Brewers Association, I like had the best mentors in the, in the whole entire industry. And to watch someone like me just completely crash and burn with drugs and alcohol. Um, it's a rude awakening to what's going on um, on a daily basis. And I was in San Francisco. I am not the only person who had a problem. And I'll tell you what, I was getting my drugs from my distributor reps and from my bartenders. Like that's where my dealers were, were in the industry and they were also using. And, you know, I'm sure you know <laughs> it's rampant. And Don't choose pointing to Vato. Vato. You are. Well, not that you're a user, but you probably no, know no, no. how Just bad kidding. it really, really no, is. No, I get it. I get it. It's a dirty yeah. industry. And it's, uh, you know, so speaking of how some bartenders make extra money. <laughs> Tell you that's mm-hmm. that's very very common for uh, people to pick up dealing, whether it's just dope or like marijuana, or it's actually like you know cocaine and some of the harder drugs. You know, in the restaurant industry, that's a that's a kind of like a complementary trade to pick up. 
Well, and we've talked about this before. You know, bartending it's, is a vice. Yeah, you're, you're selling vice. You can get like five bucks a hand job. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom, boom. That's actually the if, deal we work now. Yeah. <laughs> Where is your restaurant again? <laughs> right. Wouldn't you like to know? But that's um, a that's a thing. How do you separate that? That yeah. you are seeing people constantly every day. You know, maybe not constantly, but you're seeing people push their limits. How right. do you draw that separation yourself? You know, personally, cert- not very well. Yeah. I so, mean, fair you know, enough. Yeah. Bird. I'm, I'm, I'm towing the line, but you know. Well, that's an interesting question because what you're saying, I mean, you're, you're the darling, you're working really hard. You've got this, uh, this esteemed position, but like what, so where's the line between like being very functional and then like right. immediately like falling off, you know, it's like there's yeah. an explosion, right? Like, is it impossible? So there's a lot of functional. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, two suicide attempts. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much when you learn that you are not managing your life uh, when you want to take it. You know, that's kind of something we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the first step is admitting that your life has become unmanageable. And when you want to take it, that's pretty much mm-hmm. as unmanageable as it gets. It's hmm. fair. So is it almost you look at celebrities, which is maybe arguably you can argue with celebrity that um, they get to this point where there's just so much there's so much partying. There's so much exposure. It's there. They're constantly looking kind of for the next thing. You know, is it how do you how do you balance that? Do you just can you can you not? Is there? Well, just- I mean, I think I did a pretty good job of keeping the face. And everybody who knows me and knew me out there, unless they were the ones who were interacting with me or doing the drugs with me, nobody knew. But at the same time, like, I will be very honest, cocaine didn't come into my life until the book. And I wasn't able to manage having a full-time job during the day and writing my book at night and the weekends. And I found a little friend to help me. And the problem with Mm -hmm. being bipolar is that my bipolar brain was like, oh, yeah, we just found out our perfect combination. We got a depressant. We've got booze. Now we've got stimulants in our life. Now I was chemically managing my own bipolar disorder, hypothetically through drugs. So I have like a totally different perspective on this. I'm not like your everyday drug drug user mm-hmm. or your everyday drinker. Sure. Like mine became a chemical dependency and it became playing with my brain you know, and so it, I just ended up going like completely off the rails. So I wasn't able to control my own like usage. And w- was there time? And this is a very interesting story. It, was there time maybe where you went to the doctor early saying, here are some of these signs. This is what I'm witnessing early in kind of. The- no. So this is this is this. There lies the problem when you're an addict. Um, well, even before that, you're, well, like, the I mean, whole they bipolar, already knew. Yeah, they knew they I was knew. bipolar. Okay. But by then I was so deep in the alcohol industry that I knew you can't can't drink and take brain drugs. It's just, you know, especially if depression is one of your things, they, they highly recommend that you stop drinking altogether. I couldn't give it up. And I could like I couldn't give my addictions up until now, until I, I literally crashed and burned and I almost killed myself. And that's when I had to say, whoa, you yeah. know, and uh, and ask for help. That was a huge thing. I didn't want to ask for help because I didn't want anyone to know about my drugs Mm -hmm. and I didn't want anyone to take them away. And, you know, I didn't want anyone to think that I was losing control over alcohol because I didn't want my bosses to fire me. I didn't want to lose, you know. And so I was trying my darndest to manage everything within my control so that I could still get my drugs. Nobody would take them like a doctor would take them away. And, you know, like if I had told a psychiatrist that I was struggling, my other world would have been gone. Mm-hmm. And I, I was too deep in it. So mm-hmm. you, you're, you've been very public 
about this mm-hmm. um, since since it all, you, you kind of took a break from social media and that you came back probably what about a month ago if that maybe yeah, a couple weeks barely, ago yeah. um, and, and so how is I imagine people have been supportive is that what you're recognizing when when you mm-hmm. do the, the these are some really intense posts that you're making uh, on Instagram and on Facebook um, what do you what are you seeing from the community that you're a part of um, there's a lot of shock. Uh, because nobody saw it coming. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> that have known me <laughs> have seen me cry. A lot of people have seen me break down in bars, especially during the Great American Beer Festival. And everyone has to realize when you're at the top and everybody's looking at you all the effing time, you're going to Britney Spears at some point. And that's what happened to me. You know, like I can't be on stage all the time and taking pictures with everybody and running here, running there. I have work responsibilities, but then I have my my personalities to be responsible for. And at the end of the day, I was getting out of control with drinking and because I couldn't manage these events and like I didn't know how to. So I was just getting drunk and then crying. And, you know, I got in trouble. And I'm sure Green Flash doesn't want me to take, talk about this, but I got in trouble this year at the Great American Beer Festival. I got written up by my boss because I ended up crying at an event at Falling Rock and just making a scene. And they thought it was really inappropriate behavior, which it totally was. It was not a good representation of a Green Flash employee to be crying during an event. And, you know, I gladly accepted that, you know, um, but at the same time, it was a it was a clear sign that I was going really far down the rabbit hole because that was only a few months before I actually did. And I ended up here on one way flight. Did, do you feel like as a lady in the industry that you had to hold back some of those feelings maybe more because not to I'm trying to say this not as an asshole, um, you well, know, right. because you're trying Too to. Late. Well, I mean, <laughs> there was a really good period of my life. I mean, you can tell by my appearance that I'm a little. A little, a little different. I'm very alternative. And there was a period when I first started writing about beer, I was this blonde, like pretty little girl. And I noticed that I was not getting the right attention or the attention I wanted. I wanted respect. So I started molding my personality more towards, you know, the, the tomboy and more towards the alternative punk chick. And so I didn't have people treating me like a girl at some point, you know, like there was a, there was a clear change probably in around 2011, 2012, when I went from girl to just professional in the industry. And so I was treated very, very equal. That's why I never had an issue with, with it being a male dominated industry because people knew I could wash kegs better than a lot of guys. They knew that I could fucking rake and I could do everything in the brewery that any man could do. And I could actually lift a half barrel. So I don't know why I felt the need to say that. There it is. I I can, uh, yeah. You know, I made sure to be able to do whatever a guy could do. And, you know, I can't lift a hip real. And I was just thinking, because if you're trying to struggle with these emotions, then at the, you know, at the time, if you're like, I I can't cry because I I want to, you know. Hey, cocaine. (laughs) Okay, yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) that was my levelizer. Like, my leveler, I guess, levelizer is not a word, but, you know, like, Drugs. It is helped. now. Yeah, levelizer. So I mean, yeah, you're right. There, I had to find a great combination. But bipolar disorder, unfortunately, is not always steady. So you know, there were times when I had episodes. But a lot of people that you know, they knew. Like a lot of people that I was really close to in the industry, like Julia Hers, was a great confidant of mine. She's the uh, craft beer program director. 
and a lot of events. I mean, she has given, she sent me a book, you know, to read and things like that. And she suffers from depression from time to time. And so she was very empathetic to my situation and she was always there for me. So there are a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people in the industry that now speaking of by coming out public, everybody's been coming to me with all of their own issues and all their demons that they're fighting because, you know, mental illness takes different faces. It's not exactly this, um, picture perfect like OCD is washing your hands like crazy. Well, I'm OCD as F, but I don't have a clean place. It's all chaotic. You know, my OCD is totally different, but it, you know, like all these mental illnesses, they manifest in different forms and you're not going to see like bipolar always be the same in every person. I, I think in the, the, in the industry, the more I've done this, the more I've kind of gotten bigger, if you will, there's more free there's more free booze you go to these events there's free booze everywhere you go to the bars and it's like nick try this do this try this try this so it's i think it's very easy to overdo it and so i can imagine when you get to your level that it's just it's there it's everywhere there's that control that you must have and to say no because you don't want to hurt someone's feelings either you're like hey i brought you this amazing beer that i waited in line for 10 you know 10 hours oh I'm, i'm good thank you you know that's hard i never said no no, I was the party girl too. Sure. I mean, that's the part of the, the darling aspect of it is that I wasn't the 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 older professional who was sitting there just smelling and tasting and maybe spitting out. I was like, hell yeah, down the gullet, let's go. You know, I I worked that GBF JBF floor. I mm-hmm. made sure to hit up everybody. Yeah. And cut all the lines because I could go. I had the I had the badge, so I just walked behind Russian River, and I was like, hey, friends, what's going on? <laughs> Flighty, done. <laughs> So now you're back in Michigan. Is this kind? Was this kind of a way to cut yourself off from? Oh, it's not back. This is brand new territory for me. My parents moved here two years ago, so we're all a little bit uh, kind of uh-huh. out of place as New Yorkers. That's because that's my my original. My mom's a New Yorker, born and raised in Manhattan, and uh, my grandmother actually lives out in Staten Island. And so, if I wanted to, I can talk like this. But um, so we're all out of place out here, which for me is a probably the coolest place and the safest place to get um, help and to go through recovery because I don't have my dealers. I don't know anybody who can get me drugs. I, you know, I have my parents essentially like hawking me all day long, making sure I don't like F up and drink, you know, my mom. And this is how snobby I am. Speaking of snobby about booze, she has vodka in the house and she's like, this isn't going to tempt you, is it? And I was like, I don't drink vodka. (laughs) I don't like vodka. It's gross. (laughs) She's like, okay. And I'm like, yeah, no, seriously. I don't drink vodka. If I'm relapsing, I'm going to Plum Market. I'm going to get me some St. George Botanivore gin. And then I'm going to get Fuck yeah, great gin. (laughs) (laughs) St. George, what's up, motherfuckers? (laughs) And then I'm going to get me some Lillette. And then I'm going to get some uh, absinthe from St. George as well. I'm going to get me some uh, maraschino cherries, uh, Luxardo cherries, sorry. And then I'm going to get me some... Uh, I need some Cointreau and then some lemon juice. I'm going to make myself Corpse Survivor 2s all night. And that's my relapse, not vodka. Yeah, I, I, went, I went very specific. You went in. Like you you, went, you went for it. I already know. I Let mean, me know. I'm not, I'm no, not okay. going to relapse, but, yeah. but I'm telling you, like, even in AA, this is the fascinating thing, too, is, like, the, the people who are, like, true liquor alcoholics can't even have hairspray or perfume or hand wow. sanitizer and all that shit smells like fusel to me. So I'm like, 
gross because I have a really high sensitivity to fusel alcohols. Like if a beer is over a certain um, percentage of alcohol and it's not balanced or if it's a barrel-aged beer and perhaps the fusels haven't completely blown off and it's not really like, you know, aged properly or long enough, um, I'm like, no, no, thank you. You know, alcohol is not really my thing, like the flavor or the smell of it. Um, But yeah. There is a documentary that just came out on Netflix. I don't know if anyone's seen it at the alcoholism documentary. And Ooh. there is one guy that's toward the end that he just gets the shakes if he doesn't drink. Oh, that's very common. Yeah. Mm. And it's, it was that's just, why yeah. there is rehab facilities because some people can't just come off of alcohol. Yeah. yeah. It's just like a lot of drugs. Is that the one that was on HBO? Yeah. It, it like just came out. Like it's like December. We had the guy who was uh, who brought his son out to him. He was in the Keys and he brought his son out to him and wanted to move out. But that doesn't no, sound familiar. But potentially. Well, there's a, there's a lot of stuff on alcoholism. Intervention is like one of those things that they like to show us. I mean, that's like extreme. Yeah. You're talking about extreme cases. You're talking about cases of people who if you remove all alcohol from their apartment or living establishment and then there's mouthwash, they'll chug the mouthwash. Like that's a totally different level of that's alcohol. It's a, a harsh buzz. I don't even want to know. It's a harsh just, buzz. It's like just, drinking Everclear it Sounds like college. middle school. I'm just kidding. Yeah. I've never done it. Well, no, and that's the other problem is yeah. you're seeing a lot of kids finding ways yeah. um, to use household um, like substances. Yeah. yeah, and you know they're dying. Yeah, and that's actually happening in the Midwest. Actually, this Friday, um, I'm probably going down to Ohio. They're having this national heroin march. Because the city of Portsmouth, I guess, is where heroin was invented. I don't know. But, like, once you're once you're in the sobriety community and, like, I'm kind of trying to be, like, a face again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mental health and sobriety is a good thing for me. It's very healthy. Um, sobriety, at least. Mental health is a little, little tricky. But, um, you know, just attending some of these things because heroin right now is on the rise, especially right here in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. You know, Ohio, there's, like, a... Every day there's like 20 people dying. Um, these kids are ODing. And, you know, the same thing with the alcohol. Like they're finding new ways to inject alcohol into their systems. Eyeballs and like oh, I don't even want to talk about it. No. These very gross hands. things. It's like think about yeah. feminine products that are very absorbable mm-hmm. that you can put in mm-hmm. places. Girls are doing that. that you generally yeah. think about those things as like really with the really hard drugs. But typically alcohol – Really associate well, I mean, with, the like, blood is right there. Well, they're trying to, to get them. it in as fast yeah, as possible. And I just don't understand that either. Yeah. It's like, why can't you wait the 20 minutes or whatever for that shot to get in? But, I mean, I don't um, understand. Well. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they're cutting the drugs with a lot of horrible chemicals. Yeah. So they're trying to take like something that might have been a pure form and then throw in a whole bunch of shit. That can give you a buzz, but it's like chemical crazy. Like it's just – it's stuff that you're not supposed to even go near. Not like heroin is, but heroin what? was invented as a as a medicine at one point. You know, It is a synthetic form of morphine and it's an opiate. It's in mm-hmm. the opiate family. So, so being being in all these organic restaurants up until this point, mm, did it ever yes. cross your mind like, do Berkeley. I have organic cocaine? Oh wow, that's really well, no. interesting. I never really because thought you about think that. about all these things you're putting in your body, and you bring mm-hmm. up cutting like cutting the drugs. Yeah, ah, 
Well, pure cocaine. Well, I would assume that cocaine. Oh, I. You know what? I don't know because I don't know anything about the actual physical growing of cocaine, the coca leaf or whatever. I know. Well, it's like it's not. I mean, because that's so hard to get. Probably. Well, I don't know how hard to get. Like the pure. Yeah. yeah, To actually go to South America, I believe. I don't know. Well, think about where where are you going with this? (laughs) I'm just thinking about like marijuana. We're now. It's Lato. What's up? So marijuana for sure. So so we can make a segue from marijuana because marijuana is a cousin of hops, and there's legal. Illegal, right. People are legally growing exactly. it, so they can go like this is organic and all that. But yeah. marijuana, just like hops, is very susceptible to mold and molding, mm. and so that's why it is very hard to grow organic hops um, because mm. of the mold. The only place where that they're successfully growing organic, like really great quantities and beautiful um, hops, is New Zealand because everything in New Zealand is organic. They don't have a pest problem. They don't spray. Even the grapes, like everything you're getting, it doesn't have to be labeled as organic. If it says New Zealand, it's organic. Organic lamb. I thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm getting, I'm getting a side eye. Yeah, sweet, sweet New Zealand cocaine. But I don't, I don't really know what the chemicals would do for something like uh, marijuana because that's that's a really interesting thing to think about because at least with hops, most of them are put in the boil so that the mm-hmm. chemicals essentially would be boiled off, like anything that was um, like sprayed on the crop. But something like marijuana, where you're where you're smoking it, are you burning those chemicals in? Whatever right. whatever vessel you're using, are you getting? Are you inhaling chemicals because of that? Sure. Take that for Nick's other podcast. Marijuana is well. It's it's a. I mean, it's going to be a business in Detroit. I mean, it's still it's still medicinal, quote unquote. Nick drinks. Nick smokes. How do you get a marijuana <laughs> card in Michigan? Just asking for Very a friend. <laughs> Actually, I probably like should. It's finding the right doctor. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I'm not sure. Some of the large, like if you. Go I to just the, miss uh, edibles. That's all I want. Yeah. I don't want the actual smoking part. I just want to like eat a brownie. <laughs> I'm sure there's there's ways. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> but I don't want to go down that road, you know, because right, right. I mean, there is there are. So I don't have an issue with opiates like you can throw pills in front of me and be like, get away from me. I don't care about Oxycontin. Gross, you know. And so every every addict has their has their addiction. There are some of us, not me, who can't have anything at all. Um, marijuana was never my favorite. I hated it because it, it did. That was a dissociative in my brain, you know, ketamine is so huge in the Bay Area. It's extraordinarily huge with all of the Burning Man crowd. And I hated that stuff. You know, I didn't like feeling out of my head. I either wanted to be like super focused or wasted. Does ketamine have like a, a street name? I'm Okay. K. Vitamin K. It's um, horse tranquilizer. Oh, all right. I've, I've heard of it, at least. Yeah. So, I mean, they're oh. snorting horse tranquilizers and it's essentially making you kind of like not like a, it's not like you're going on a trip you're per tranquil. se but you're you're like not in your own brain and then you, you don't like hallucinate but you definitely aren't in yeah. a good state of mind or maybe you are in a good state of mind i didn't like it i felt like i was like so hot and like all the colors and then i was like i don't know this is not fun for me for i don't even know if i'm supposed to be talking i've done all the drugs let's all talk about drugs everybody listening nick is uh, sitting here with a legal pad frantically writing everything down <laughs> all the notes all drugs the notes. 101 well you know i'm sure it's bigger than you think it is out oh, here yeah. Um, you know, I just happen to be so exposed to it in California because so many friends are Burning Man people. Well, it comes back burners. to like populations. You know, the San Francisco has a lot more people than us. Right. So and therefore there's access to more things. 
And I'm sure it's probably out there. Well, and piriforms too, because like when you think about, I don't think Detroit's dirty, but there's a lot of dirty drugs out here. You know, by the time it gets to Midwest, it's like, what are you actually putting in your nose or smoking or whatever? It's probably not organic. It's probably not. (laughs) Although, you know, I would look into the agriculture. I mean, that's a really fantastic thing to think about because something that you're you're not uh, cooking. So you're not getting rid of any chemicals that you put on these plants. It's Why the same are you thing pointing with, at me? You're a restaurant. I don't know. I'm like thinking about vegetables over here. I don't cook here. drugs that often. No. You know, very, very, a couple times a week and then that's I it. I mean the synthetic ones, but those aren't you – you don't even talk about organic when you talk about synthetic chemicals that are invented in a lab like heroin is. But, I mean, when you're talking about like pure opium, I mean, yeah, I would probably wonder – you know, what else, what, what's being sprayed on things that you're lighting up or however you do opium. I'm going to get a call and they be like, why are all these people, why, why are your guys over at all my places at the same time? Why do time? they always want to know what my birthday is? <laughs> so, so we're, looking, we're looking for Nick. <laughs> but you know what? Being out in suburbia, I have learned that pills are yeah. so huge. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's like every disparate housewife of Detroit is on something. What? It's true. Yeah, I'm going no, to be totally very candid. Yeah. I was told I could say whatever I want. You, you can. <laughs> because, I mean, that's that's pretty much true. Too. Yeah. yeah. It's life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you try to escape somehow, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a huge problem right now is the prescriptive side because all of a sudden it's acceptable drug addiction, but it's not. You know, I, I can't talk much because it's like anonymous, but like there's a kid in high school that frequents some of my meetings and, you know, I'm just like, wow, like, how did you have like the guts or like the, the wherewithal as like a kid to be like, hey, I got addicted to my prescriptive like Adderall. Mm-hmm. I have a problem and get yourself into meetings, you know, and uh, like he does it without his parents and he is very participant, like he participates and, you know, but for the most part, you got to think every other kid in his school is doing drugs and they're getting them from their doctor or from their parents. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's getting diagnosed with something. I mean, I can't get Adderall because I've had an issue with cocaine. Like, they keep that, especially Ritalin, because Ritalin's, like, as close to cocaine as you can possibly get. <laughs> Don't want the kids to be hearing that. But, like, you know what? Like, people need to know that there has to be more awareness about these prescriptive medications because guess what? You think you're getting your kid, like, what they need to stay focused in school? Well, chances are they're doing a pill party with their friends. They're throwing all the pills in a bucket and then they're grabbing a handful. They're taking, no, that's what they do. They're crushing up their Ritalin or their Adderall and they're snorting it instead of actually taking it the way that they're supposed to. And then now we have an epidemic of prescriptive drug addiction. So, so you, you mentioned earlier that green flag, you're on a leave from green flash. Yes. Yes. Okay. Oh, green so so <laughs> do, do you plan? Like, and I don't know if you can say this or like, I don't think they'll listen to this. I don't know. Maybe they are stalking we me. We have a million point five listeners. So somebody <laughs> will listen. There's this. a zero. Oh, no. After our one, listeners, right? Sorry. It's 1.55. Hi, mom. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I Jason's mom only listens half the time. She calls. It's not even live. She calls it. Like, Wait, can, you're right. I had the decimal point. She pops a few pills. Yeah. There, so. <laughs> Your decimal point. It was way up. <laughs> um, so, do you, I mean, I know you can't tell the future, but what, what do you think is next for you? I moved here. Mm. I did. I, I got my car two weeks ago. Um, I moved across the country. I think my employer kind of knows because they, they call me and I don't want to answer the phone. But 
wow, this is public now. <laughs> well, so it's no, the thought I mean, to stay in the industry? To sell? Oh, no. Okay. No, no, no. I, I actually can't stay in the industry. Okay. Um, no. I mean, there's no way. I know more about beer than the majority of the world. I know more about beer than a lot of people in the industry. Most of the industry. I know more about beer than most humans that follow me will ever know. And uh, that's unfortunate, but that's great knowledge that, you know, I used and I used for a good purpose. I put it on paper. I have a book and that's, you know, a great accomplishment. And now I need to uh, transition out and it's actually not even a transition. It's more of just a piece. Yeah, it's been real. It's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. Where can we find your book? On the Amazon. Is that, is, does that give you the most money? Just, I mean, um, I don't make money off my book yet okay. <laughs> because uh, the um, the advance I got um, still my profit still haven't reached the advance. Got it. It's just publishing shit. But, so just buy it. <laughs> well, I just did it for credibility mm-hmm. to be like, look at me, thirty years old, writing a book about beer, right. mm-hmm. and it's comprehensive, and it's the very first comprehensive book that brings in beer cocktails. So the level that I bring in, I actually have a whole section on how to uh, structure a perfect cocktail before I even talk about the spirits and bringing in beer as an additional ingredient. So, Ashley, where else can people find you online? Uh, the Beer Wench um, is my main moniker. And then Perpetually Flawed is my um, recovery account for Instagram. And uh, it's uh, – <laughs> It's graphic. It's I'm talking right now. I have the past three posts have been with my battle of uh, anorexia when I was 22 or so, right before I got in the restaurant industry. Restaurants uh, saved my life because they taught me to love food again and respect food. And actually, beer really did save my life. You know, everything happens for a reason. Um, beer saved me from anorexia. It put on. I was 97 pounds at one point. You know, and then I put on. You know, a good 60 or so. And, you know, so for, well, not right now. I'm, I'm a little thinner than I was when in the, was in the beer industry. We'll say that. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, uh, beer saved me from anorexia. And then, you know, my new addiction became, you know, a real addiction. Um, my addiction is self-harm. And that's the problem is that, you know, I started with anorexia. I went into cutting. Um, you know, I have, you, you can't really tell it's bad, but, you know, I've done some damage. You know, I sliced open my arm. Um, with that butcher knife, like I said, and, uh, you know, that became one of mine. And then, you know, addiction itself, you know, poisoning my body with alcohol and drugs that that became another addiction. So, you know, right now I'm queen of all self-harm, which is good. But I'm also very cognizant of, you know, what's next. Um, <laughs> probably. I mean, relapsing for me in the bipolar world. So you have relapsing from drugs and alcohol, which is obviously I would take one of those. Um, relapsing for me in the bi- bipolar recovery process would be regressing to former behaviors like cutting or, you know, limiting my food intake, you know, and starting to go towards the anorexic route again or um, potentially developing some new form of self-harm that I wouldn't under- like really grasp until it actually manifests as something really serious and life threatening. And like same thing, it's the suicide ideation. Once that comes back, I'm going through a relapse and I have to tell my doctors I want to die again, you know, and that's a huge problem for me is just the once the urge to die comes, people don't understand um, that necessarily. It's very hard for someone who hasn't been in um, 
in the midst of a manic episode, like why on earth I would chug a bottle of muscle relaxers and as much alcohol as physically possible and hope I didn't wake up. It's because that's where my brain was. And there was no time for my brain to stop and say, hey, why don't you call somebody and ask for help? You don't think. So I just have to watch those like small little triggers and this these little little relapses. Like when I was here – I caught myself. I sliced open my arm and I took a picture and I put it on Instagram. And that's what I'm going at. Like, that's going to be a very raw account for me because I want people to know, like, this is what illness, this is what mental health looks like. This is what we do to ourselves. And I'm going to tell you as much as I can about why I did it. But at the end of the day, you know, the only people that can really empathize are those who hurt themselves like I do. Ashley, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, It's been great um you know it's been intense but it's been a really uh thought-provoking discussion thank you uh we gotta go thanks for joining us on the herd podcast uh next next time we'll be back with uh jake uh williams and dorothy hernandez from Serap, the filipino pop-up thanks guys